Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday. It is February the 2nd, 2017, and it's time for the Listener Call Show of the Week. This is where you pick your phone up and you make a phone call. You dial the following number, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And unlike a conventional radio show, you won't hear, hi, caller, this is Jack, you're on the air. This is a podcast. That means it's pre-recorded. It means you can call in any time you want and leave your message. To, to get on the air, the best formula to follow with leaving a message is as follows. Hi, Jack. My name is. I am calling in from blank. My question is, boom. Not my question is, I guess, kind of, sort of, about. My question is, boom. Then details. Uh, then you'll be most likely to end up on the air because you're most likely to get through the screening that I do because I get more calls than I can put on the air, so I have to have winners and losers, and those calls generally are the winners. Uh, with that, I also want to remind you, call from a quiet area. Do not call with, with your you know vehicle doing 80 miles an hour on the highway with the windows down. Uh, call from a quiet area. Make sure there's some bars on your phone if you're using your cell phone because there'll be nobody to tell you that you sound garbled or what have you. And don't call me once somebody's running a chainsaw behind you or from the back of a motorcycle. All of these things will help me help you. <clears throat> anyway, with that, let's let's tell you what we're going to talk about today. I got a question on automating duck watering systems, but not really the water they drink, but the water they swim and poop in. And it kind of sort of could work, but it probably wouldn't. Um, next up, a uh, question on choosing a career path. I have a question on rehabbing, uh, rehabbing cleared black walnut woodlots. Uh, my current thoughts on RVs, someone wants to know, and paint cans. Uh, you'll understand the paint cans when we get to it. Old-timers are going, oh, yeah, that, I remember that. What does he think about them now? Uh, we have a, a caller that called in about something I had never heard of. It's called spalting, S-P-A-L-T-I-N-G, and it's basically the inoculation of wood with fungus. Not to grow mushrooms, though. What is it? You'll find out when I cover it today. It's pretty cool. A question on mulching with pine, and I'll give you a very short answer to that one. Just do it. And uh, the dawn of the death of officer discretion is here. Uh, Austin, our friendly Leo from North Central Texas, or Central Texas, I should say, uh, I called in with, uh, he is, is, is in, you know, basically on a board, uh, to, uh, to get everything set up for the, um, body cameras that his department will be using. And he calls in to tell us what it's going to mean. And it means exactly what I said it was going to mean back when this all started up. Um, we also have a new Amazon series. It's not really new. It's been around for a couple of years. I just never heard of it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I'll tell you about it when we, uh, when we get to that segment. And then I have a question on understanding bullets and killing and specifically understanding why we look for different things when it comes to, let's say, shooting a deer or shooting a guy breaking into your house trying to kill you. Uh, in, in many cases, of course, the, the, the round that we use on the deer would be far more lethal, but, There's, you know, not everybody understands ballistics or grew up hunting and fishing and, or has a real ballistics background. And there's some parts of this question might seem pretty basic, but I bet there's a lot of people out there that I, I think I can really, uh, help to understand more about ballistics and calibers and, 
kinetic energy and sectional density and all that good stuff and uh, and keep it keep it basic enough that it won't make anybody's eyes glaze over. That'll be our final question of the day. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Bob Wells Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Next up, our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Deliberate Defense. They provide firearms training and NRA instructor certification. They're located in New Mexico. Check them out on the TSP Business Directory. Again, Deliberate Defense, our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day. Next up, I have the year that was the episode, 1944. We're into the the the, the true middle and, and, and heading toward the decline of World War II here. And uh, it's, it's, it's one of these ones where it's going to be a longer history segment because so much is going on. And, and Alex is putting so much work into these. I want to make sure that they're, that they're appreciated. So I want to basically read all the bullet points. He only has one segment for us. It's called Designs That Should Work But Don't, like coffee creamers and torpedoes. Really interesting. You might want to read that. I'm going to read everything else for you. Notable births this year. Bill Ayers Living, founder of the Weather Underground. Not a weather site, teacher of your children, and likely a ghostwriter for Barack Obama. Guilty as sin and free as a bird. Uh, Angela Davis, living communist leader, teacher of your children, and acquitted murderer of four people uh, in Marion County Courthouse shooting. It's always nice to know that your teacher didn't actually shoot someone in the head. Carl Bernstein, living journalist along with Bob Wood Woodward, that produced evidence of the Watergate scandal that caused President Nixon to resign. <clears throat> and in entertainment, Ben Stein, living, economist, speechwriter for Nixon, and famous line Bueller Bueller from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. George Lucas, living, founder of Industrial Light and Magic, best known for Star Wars and Indiana Jones series. Lauren Michael, still with us, creator of Saturday Night Live. Harold Ramis, uh, from Ghostbusters, Groundhog Day, and more comedy than you can shake a stick at. Doesn't say living. I did not know Harold Ramis had passed away. Barry White, this man's singing voice is responsible for more babies being born than any other man in history. And more and more and more. I can't name them all, so I'll leave it there. <clears throat> This The year in film, Going My Way, starring Bing Crosby. Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Julie Garland. 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, starring Spencer Tracy as Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle. And several others you can still see on TV now and again. I have to stop somewhere, so I'll let it go at that. <clears throat> This year in music, I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places by Bing Crosby. Don't Fence Me In, Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters, Swinging on a Star from Bing Crosby, and band leader Major uh, General Miller has died in a plane cro crash over the English Channel. Being too old for service, he volunteered to bring Army Band into the modern age. Yep. In other news, economist Frederick, Hay Frederick Hayek publishes The Road to Serfdom. It's a must-read for everyone, frankly. It really is. If you haven't read The Road to Serfdom, you should. <clears throat> The United Negro College Fund is incorporated. A mine is a terrible thing to waste. It was a good idea when it first started and for years thereafter, but lost its way somehow. Smokey the Bear appears on posters for the first time. 
World War II in review. Note about a third of Japan's holes are going to be at the bottom this year. Given that Japan has a sea-based transportation system, even domestically, the loss of capacity will be devastating. Okay, January. <clears throat> the RAF drops 2,300 tons of bombs on Berlin. The Battle of Anzio, Italy begins. It will be an Allied victory four months later, but 11,000 confirmed dead, 83,000 casualties, and tens of thousands missing. The American forces land on the Japanese-held Marshall Islands. It's going to be ugly. February, American bombers hit German aircraft manufacturing centers. A Jewish film director produces a Nazi propaganda film. Why would he do that? He was promised his life in exchange, but Kurt Guerin is taken to Auschwitz and gassed. March, Joop Westerwheel is shot for rescuing Jewish children. He was smuggling them into Spain. RAF Flight Sergeant Nicholas Akabade bails out over Germany without a parachute and lives. From 12,000 feet, he hits tree branches and falls into deep snow. The Great Escape, 76 Royal Air Force POWs tunnel out of Stalag Luft 3. Only three make it back to the UK, 50 are executed. April, Adolf Eichmann offers blood for goods. He will exchange Jews for supplies on the Eastern Front. Operation Overlord, a full-scale rehearsal of the Normandy invasion takes place. Well, they're just they're just practicing. 749 American servicemen are killed just stepping off the landing ships in a practice. Doesn't look good, does it? Uh, Hitler orders in May, fight to the last man in the Ukraine. The Germans say, I surrender to the Soviets. Crimea is also liberated. USS England sinks the sixth Japanese submarine in two weeks. This remains a record. Um, the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven all pertain to Operation Overlord. The BBC transmits a coded message. The invasion of Europe is coming. The weather forecast is reasonable for tomorrow's Normandy landing. 5,000 tons of bombs drop on gun German gun batteries along the Normandy coast. U.S. and British paratroopers are on their way to, for a drop behind German lines. It's D-Day. 155,000 Allied troops land on the beaches of northern France. This is the largest amphibious assault in history. The Allies move inland. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Thousands have died just getting off the boat. Leaving Operation Overlord now. V-1 flying bombs hit London. They're slow enough that the RAF pilots can tip a V-1 into the drink. This is like fighting a bear with a pole while balancing on a wooden fence. And If you don't know what that's about, the, the V-1 rockets were basically like self-guided aircraft, like planes, and they, they flew about the speed of a, of a regular plane. And what the, the, the Royal Air Force would do to save ammunition instead of shooting them down is they just intercept them over the English Channel and, and pull up next to them and take their wingtip and then just roll their wing a little bit underneath them and flip them over and they would crash down into the, the English Channel. Uh, that's one of the lesser-known things, I think, of the history of World War II. Uh, then U.S. forces land on Saipan. Japanese nurses give hand grenades to their patients for an easy death. Civilians throw themselves off cliffs. Japanese officers ask for their subordinates to behead them. Instead, their subordinates just shoot them. I could say more, but no, <clears throat> I can't say more. So Soviet forces liberate Belarus. The Germans are well and truly hosed now. Back to Operation Overlord. American troops enter Cherbong, France. <clears throat> July. First Lieutenant Jackie Robinson refuses to step to the back of a U.S. Army bus. He will be acquitted eventually. He will also be a baseball player eventually. Did you guys know that Jackie Robinson wasn't just a soldier in World War II, but a first lieutenant, an officer? Yep. 
Japan's Prime Minister Tojo resigns for his failures. He will later be executed by Allied forces. <clears throat> Operation Valkyrie, Adolf Hitler survives an assassination attempt. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer will be executed for his part in the plot a few months before the end of the war. August, Anne Frank and her family are, Anne Frank and her family are arrested. All but her father will die in the death camps. He will return and find her diary. 40,000 to 50,000 Polish civilians are massacred by the SS. I mentioned this leads people think that only Jews are being massacred. Back to Operation Overlord. The Allies enter Paris. Hitler orders that Paris be destroyed. The Germans decline to do so and surrender. Let me pause there a second and tell you what's beginning to happen. The German soldiers who have been fighting this war are now realizing that all is lost. That they are not going to be able to... Not only, not only just not win the war, but that the Allies will march on Berlin and that all will fall. Many of them know the horrors that have been going on. They want to be able to say, we're soldiers, we're not the SS. We're soldiers, we're not the people running the concentrations. We're soldiers, we should be treated under the rules of war, as prisoners of war. And when the war is over, we should go back to our lives like your soldiers go back to their lives. And we don't want to be seen as, as part of this murderous regime. Even if we were okay with it, we are, we are cutting our losses here. That's what's beginning to happen. And there was probably a lot more fight left in Germany than ended up happening. You know, there's plenty of fighting left at this point because the soldiers began to think about we're going to have to live after this war. While many of the, the soldiers in Japan would rather die, the Germans were of a mindset that they're going to live and that they would rather live as free men rather than be executed as war criminals. That's what's starting to re And that means that the whole thing's about to come, come un unglued and come out of gasket. All right, so going back to it, uh, V2 rockets hit London. These are much faster. The RAF pilots cannot tip these. These are basically your first you know, um, surface-to-surface cruise missiles. They're just not that accurate yet. Uh, October, Hitler accuses Rommel of conspiracy. Rommel takes his own life. General Douglas MacArthur returns to the Philippines. Brigadier General Wender Fittig arranges a marching band to greet him. Wendell has done very well indeed. Charles de Gaulle forms a provisional government in France. FDR wins a fourth term in November. Harry S. Truman is vice president replacing Wallace, who was soft on communism. December, Major General Miller disappears in heavy fog over the English Channel. All is lost. Germany begins the Battle of the Bulge. It's an effort to break out of the Allied encirclement. It will eventually fail. And George Marshall becomes the first U.S. five-star general. And, of course, we know that eventually there will be this some kind of plan named after him. So that's what's going on in the world in 1944. When you think our life is hard today, yeah, just reflecting back to that, there's a reason that the generation that fought that war has been called, and, and, and probably for the foreseeable future, will be called the greatest generation. Because this is what they went through. This is what they went through. And many of them just completely willingly because they felt it was their duty. And it, it's not like today when the people who went to war, you know, they're all 20 years old, 18 years old, like that. Like a lot of guys that dropped everything. And I know some do still today, but back then, I mean, a lot of guys were in their late 20s. You know, and, and in 1940... When you were in your late 20s, right, you, you weren't like this uh, person uh, doing hashtag adulting because you did your laundry. If you were a 28-year-old guy, you were probably married, you probably had kids, you were probably into your career. And you turned and went and served. 
in a place where it was likely that you'd end up dead or maimed for life. Grace Generation, indeed. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack, what do you think about using IBC totes cut in half with solid lifting overflow devices and automatic waters on timers to, to refill the water for duck ponds buried in, buried in the ground, and that way you can automate your duck pond emptying. Well, it, it, it could work. And the opportune word there is could work, and it depends on a great deal of things. If you were to do it with a flock of ducks my size, the cost would be prohibitive to be able to do it right. And I'll kind of explain why here in a minute. So every day, yes, I fill up duck pools and uh, dump out the old ones, rinse them out, refill them back up. The other thing that I do is I move them. And the reason I move them is too much nutrient in one place is a bad thing. Uh, especially heavily nutrated water that's going to basically make mud. The ducks are going to go in it. They're going to pat around. They're going to make comp compacted uh, soil. It's going to be bare spots. We still struggle with some of that, even doing it right. So what that would mean is, <clears throat> sure, you can have this thing buried in the ground like a half a IBC thing, and it, it'll be a perfect environment. They'd be happy with it. They'd love it. Okay, the water's got to get out of there. Uh, you're not going to pump it out, so somehow you'd have to have a drain system in it, so you'd have to dig deep enough down in it. Uh, so you might actually be better off more being around ground level and building berms up around them. That might actually, and so ducks don't like, ducks don't like, uh, like step type things. They like a gradual slope. So here's another problem that you'd have. What you would probably have to do if you were going to do this with IBCs is you'd cut the bottom off and the top off and you'd have waste out of the middle. Because it can't be too deep because it can't get out of the steep edges. Okay, so it's got to be shallow enough that they can kind of reach down and get a push off to get out. Because ducks actually, we've had ducks get stuck in stock tanks and things like that that are only, you know, a foot and a half, two feet deep. So there's a problem. Now here's, here's your next problem. Let's say you can handle all that. Okay, now the water's going to come out. Where's it going to go? It can't go the same place every day. It's got to go someplace different every day. So then you need enough of these things in your different paddocks that the ducks can have, you know, like basically you drain one and you don't fill it back up maybe, okay? And then they're not going to use that. They're going to go to the next one, all right? So you could do that, and you have them in different paddocks and all. Well, here's the other problem. If you have a significant number of ducks, it's not just water. It's a whole bunch of duck shit and mud, mud actual mud. Here's why. And it's also going to be um, food paste, whatever they're eating. Ducks go in mud, and they get mud in their beaks, and they get excess food in their beaks. 
And all of the gook that's in a pool at the end of the day isn't just duck poo. It's also the stuff you, you see when there's a brand new clean pool, the water's crystal clear, and the little duck comes over, sticks her beak in there, and, and does it, and you see a big black cloud come out of her beak. She's cleaning her beak out. Uh, I tried a waterer in their holding area that was basically a 10-foot piece of 4-inch pipe with holes drilled in it. There's no way they could shit in there. And at the end of a week, it was almost as disgusting as the ones they actually shit in, just from cleaning out their beaks. What this means is that when I do a pool, I don't just dump it. You know, I, I usually swish the water around a little bit, or I take the hose and hose it out, because there's, there's literally a lump of shit layer in the bottom of it. And some days, some of them are really bad. So to make your solution work, you'd have to put some kind of jet pressure thing in there that would like make a spiral, you know, that would spin in a circle. So it would have to drain, and then come on at high pressure and run for a while, and then stop, let it drain, then the whatever your valve is, your solenoid would close, then it would fill to a certain point and stop. I think something along these lines, I don't know that IBCs cut up are the best solution, but something on these lines could be done for the small flock owner. Somebody with a dozen ducks, and you have enough different pools to move into different places every day, especially if you have swales in your system, and your discharge can go into swales. That's a totally different thing than going out on a flat ground or what have you. Um, so I think a small landholder, small duck flock, well-thought-out, flush-and-drain type system could work. There is a gal, I'll see if I can find the YouTube video today, she has a system she calls duck ponics. And it's what it sounds like, you know, it's like aquaponics with ducks. And she never changes her water, she just adds water to her system. She has these pools, the ducks go in the pools, the ducks crab in the pools, the water gets pumped around, there's different grow beds and all of that, just, just like an aquaponics system. So somebody sent me that a long time ago, said, Jack, you should do this, it'll be so much easier. And I looked at it and I thought, that's cute. That's She has like a half a dozen ducks, maybe a few more, maybe eight, ten at the most, and I think they're almost all Muscovy ducks. Let me tell you something. If you want your life to be easier with stuff in your, your pools, get them the scubby ducks. They just are less disgusting. They just, they crap in there less. They clean their beaks out. They just behave differently. Like you could, like I've had this one group of scubby ducks that, you know, doesn't like to hang out with the big flock. And in the summer when it's really hot because I feel bad for them, I give them their own pool. And, and pretty much all day long, they're the only ones that use it. That pool does not look bad at the end of the day. Well, I don't have those birds anymore, but there was about a dozen of them. We got rid of a lot of our muscovies. And, uh, it, you know, muscovies do all their nastiness on your porch, right? They, just, they don't mess the water up as much. So, so it's already there. So that could work. And, I mean, I think people that are, like, trying to come at this with how can I do it and automate it or whatever, I think you should consider all these options. I just... Also want to kind of point out if your if your goal is large flock size, 50, 100, 200 birds, most of these methods are not going to work because it's necessary that the discharge points move. Could you design a system to do that? Yeah. I think you'd be better off if you wanted to, like, remember, we didn't come to this piece of ground and say, this is perfect for ducks. We came to this piece of ground and said, this is perfect for us. We weren't even really thinking about ducks. We got chickens to start doing some things with, and we discovered the duck opportunity. It's not ideal duck property. The best way I could see to do ducks on a large scale with free range in the way we do things is you know, you'd want a property somewhere in the neighborhood of five acres. You'd want to split those five acres into five paddocks. 
each one of those acres, you'd want to put about a quarter quarter acre of lake or pond on it. That I mean, that would be ideal. And you might even want to be more like 10 acres, two acre paddocks, half acre lakes, five half acre lakes. And, and, and if I had that solution, I'd probably have them on a three day paddock rotation system. Paddock one for three days, paddock two for three days, paddock like that. Very, very quick turnover. That amount of water, you're not going to have it. And I would probably never leave the place because I would live on fish and duck eggs. I, I'm serious. I mean, if I had that much water, I would live on fish. I'd be like, well, we're cutting the show short today because I can see fish rising in the pond. Bye, guys. I mean, that's, that's how much I like to fish. Anyway, interesting thought. There's my thoughts on it. Let's take another one. Hi, my name is Eric from Minnesota, and I have a question for Jack. My question, I guess, is kind of your thoughts on a couple of possible crew moves. Um, I am looking at uh, considering going into a pipe fitter union trade. Uh, pros of this is, uh, number one, the money is pretty darn good. Uh, and then, but the big thing is the pension. Uh, if you're looking at about after 20 years, approximately, well, a little over 5000 a month at uh for the pension versus um, possibly going into uh, a automation robotics or, well, mechanic role for Amazon. I have a friend there who is trying to get me to come over there. I uh, may be able to get me in as a kind of a lead position. And my conundrum is uh, with the automation and whatnot, um, Jobs going more that way and jobs leaving because of automation. I don't know. Um, it seems like the Amazon thing with their automation would probably be pretty stable. I would think that the pipe fitters would be around for quite a while, but the way some of the pensions have gone, um, I guess I'm kind of up in the air. Uh, I am kind of the sole provider for a family of uh, well, my wife and two young children, so uh, I'm kind of trying to look for an upward move and something that will be stable for them and hopefully lasting a while. Uh, the other factor is I don't have much uh, saved or investments for retirement, so the union would probably be, seems like a pretty smart way to go. But just curious about your thoughts. Uh, sure appreciate the show. I love it. Uh been a member of TSP for a while, and you've uh, definitely helped change the way I think on a lot of things and improve my life. Thanks a lot. Take care. Um, so if I was going to use my gut and say I was a young man and this, this road diverged before me, uh, what way would I go? I would go the Amazon automation way. And I, I would do that for an, maybe a completely different reason than what you would want to do. And that is because I would believe that the Amazon thing would teach me more things that would make me more marketable in the future than the pipe fitting thing will. Because the pipe fitting thing is going to teach you to do pipe fitting, and, and that's what you're going to do. And that means you, you are kind of a one-trick pony. I'm sure there's some parts of that skill that will translate into other things that you'll be able to do, some mechanical things and things like that, but... In the end, when you if you're going to go look for another job, you're going to go look for another job fitting pipes. And there's no such thing as job security. I don't give a damn what a union says. And I'll tell you how you look at a, any pension uh, that's 20 years from today. 
If it happens, great. Don't plan on it. So either way, you need you don't have much savings. There's there's a problem there. You need to be saving and investing for your retirement as though you're going to get nothing else. You're as though all you're going to get is what you put away for yourself. As though you're not going to get social security, you probably will get some. Okay? You probably will get everything you're supposed to. But what it'll buy, that's going to be a totally different, you know, thing. Um, as, as, uh, as Ben Bernanke, former chairman of the Federal Reserve said, um, we can guarantee the money. We can gar absolutely guarantee the money, but we can't guarantee its value. Ron Paul got him to say that on the floor of the house. Um, so kind of sort of, I'm not real hip on, well, I'll make 60 grand a year in my pension for the rest of my life after 20 years of work. There's a lot of shit like that that's going to change in the future. We, and that's, that's probably a private pension, right? And this, we have public pensions that can steal money to supply their own stuff that are uh, kind of failing right now. So I don't know if there's public money involved with that or not. So maybe it's union for the city or something like that. Um, so I, I would go that way. Now here's what I really think you should do. As long as either one of these positions make your life better today than it is, than it, than it was yesterday, Take one of them and do what you can with it. I think you should really sit down and have a good heart-to-heart -heart with yourself and ask yourself, which one do you think you'll enjoy doing more? Which one seems like something you want to do more? Because both of them probably pay pretty well, and, and it, going one way versus the other over the next five years probably won't have that big of a difference uh, on, on your tax bracket. Um, if you called and said, should I take this pipe-fitting opportunity, and that was the only thing in front of you, I'd say, yeah, sure you should. So I'm not going to tell you take don't take it over the Amazon thing unless that's kind of what you you're you're wanting to do. So this is a personal decision. I'm not Yoda, right? I'm not Yoda. You're not Luke. You have to discover for yourself what the right path is. Um, but when I think about things like working in the kind of the technical area, the the automation area, the robotics area for Amazon.com, what I see there is an entry point into the cutting edge of everything that's going to transform society for the next 50 years. And when I look at pipe fitting, I think of manual trades, it's a good one. That's a difficult one to automate. That is a difficult skill set to automate. I'm sure there's some ways to do it, but it will probably be one of the last manual trades. You know, because there's, and it's all, you know, electrician. Anything that involves running wire in buildings is, you know, having been a guy that was in the cable industry and ran optical and copper cabling through roofs and down walls and stuff like that, it's very, very difficult. Now, I believe the way to change that is to just start designing new buildings with intention, with pathways and all, and then a lot of that could be automated, but there's a lot of resistance to that. Both of those probably have 20 years of life in them at least. Maybe not all of it with Amazon. Maybe not all of it with this particular employer that gets you into this union program or what have you. But they're not going to go away. And so if that's the case, you have to decide with, you know, pipe fitting, it's going to be a blue-collar trade. That's what it's going to be. Nothing wrong with that. Some of the best years of my life were spent in blue-collar trades. But I worked really hard at them so I could get to another level. Because there's a cap at what you can ever have there. 
And when you get into certain other positions in life, there's literally no cap. So what I see is either of them could be good paying careers, but one of them has the potential to springboard into entrepreneurship to lead to, to greater opportunities. So if you're a person that says, I don't want that shit. I want to go to work. I want to work my hours, punch my time card, come the hell home. It doesn't really matter. But if you have aspirations at a much higher level, then I think I would head toward the technical side of things. That's just my opinion. I hope it helps you, and I hope so others, you know, help, helps others think about critical decisions in your life. It doesn't have to be the same thing the caller asked about. Whenever you're faced with that, you know, two two roads diverged in 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 in, in the wood, you know, and the famous Robert Frost I, and I took the road less traveled by, and that's made all the difference. There's a lot of wisdom there, but not every decision in life needs to be made that way. Sometimes there's a reason that the less traveled path is less traveled, like it sucks. Or it leads to a cliff, or it goes 15 feet and stops, and the other path goes a lot longer. So we always have to sit down and, and, and analyze these decisions based on how they affect us today and into the future. But don't believe in the promise of money for the rest of your life from anybody at this point. The, the economic system of this planet is going to radically shift. If it happens, great. Just don't bet the farm on it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Stuart from Ontario. Uh, first of all, thank you for all you do in making the world better. Uh, my question is what advice you would have um, in planting to reclaim a black walnut forest. The details, I live in USDA, USDA Zone B, and I have a half-acre bush in the front of my property, a black walnut, that was planted too densely, and it has canker. I've started to thin it, but I'm just wondering your advice on what species to put in to begin to reclaim it. Um, Red oaks, sugar maples, I'm not really sure. So any advice that you have, or if you want to kick this to an expert council member, that would be fantastic. Again, sir, thank you for all you do. You make everybody's lives better, so thank you, sir. Take care. So to me, one of your challenges is going to be you had this incredibly dense planting of black walnut. And you're probably not removing all of it, so there's still some behind. So we've had years and years of leaves and probably walnut casing, you know, and walnuts themselves falling on the ground. And with that comes juglone, which the entire family of trees is the juglones, the walnuts, black walnuts, the hickories, uh, and pecans are all part of this juglonous uh, group, right? So... We have ground that has this juglone stuff all over it. Well, why do we care? Well, we care because it's allopathic. In other words, it actually produces things that chemically inhibit the growth of other plants to give the walnuts, the juglones, a competitive advantage. So what we really need to focus on are what grows there that, that can handle this. And it's most of your eastern woodland hardwoods that grow in and around black walnut thickets. Black cherry, okay, uh, which is, you know, your wild black cherry. I'm not talking about your cultivated varieties of cherry here. Um, mulberry. Those are probably two of your best tree species that can grow there. And those are, you know, reasonably useful trees uh, and reasonably attractive trees as well. Autumn olive will grow in there, but that's from what you're saying, it's probably not what you want. But you might want a little bit of that around your edge if you're into it for you know the the value of the autumn berries. Uh, they are they are good edible. They get a bad rap, but they're actually very much uh, a fertility boost. 
Other trees that are tolerant to uh, geoglone include most maples. So you mentioned maple, uh, except silver maple. Silver maple, not like in the juglone. Eastern red cedar, uh, Ohio buckeye, golden rain tree. You can kind of look that one up. Uh, another tree with an edible product, the service berry. Another tree that will grow there, but I don't like them in a lot of ways, uh, is a sweet gum. Uh, they're not a high-value high value timber tree. They do grow really fast, though, okay? And they drop those little balls, and those balls suck. I hate those things. Um, pawpaw will actually grow and tolerate juglone. Uh, and yellow poplar. These, those are, these are all different options of trees that um, will, will tend to do pretty well for, your, for you, even around, um, you know, ju juglone. It, see some more. I mean, I mentioned hickory, right? So hickory will because it's in the it's in the same family. It, it, it does produce juglones. It doesn't care. You know, it's like it's like it's like a honey badger. It, it doesn't it doesn't affect it, right? You know, uh, catalpa. Catalpas grow really bean trees. Some people call them really big leaves. They grow really fast. They grow really big, uh, but they're not a very high value tree, and they drop a lot of the, the bean waste. Uh, Virginia pine. Uh, we'll do sycamore, eastern redbud, um, uh, sumac will grow if you, if you, if you fancy that. Uh, most oak species will do okay. Hawthorn, black locust will be fine if you want to do that. Um, American beech, honey locust. I mean, there's a lot of trees that'll grow, but there's, there's some that won't. So, You, you kind of want to look at that as your big thing. And what do you want to do? Do you want to put in a, a mixed woodland? That's what I would want to do. That diversity has so much value. Um, some of your shrubs, if you need some shrubs, barberry, uh, rose of Sharon, um, spice brush, uh, mock orange. Again, sumac, I mentioned. I guess it's really more of a, a bush. Uh, black raspberry, elderberry, all of those things will, will grow well in that environment. So, I think it's just a matter of, of assessing, you know, what your biggest challenge is and then planning species that you select and just kind of think about how you want to do that, what you want it to look like in the end. Um, the other option would be to go in there and, and take out whatever you got to take out and then be diligent. And as things come up, just keep chopping and dropping and let it choose what it wants to send back itself. Because there's all types of, of tree seed that have ended up in there over the years. And if you're, you know, a place where black walnut grows, then you're, that tells me you're probably in the northeast uh, or the, the central eastern states, and uh, forest secession just happens there. Uh, or you could give it a little encouragement and, and seed it with different things. Honestly, you could go in and seed it with, with various white oak acorns and red oak acorns, and you could do it very, very inexpensively that way. Uh, you could, you know, do some, some stratification and germination of hickories and stuff like that. You could regrow everything from seed. It's, it's up to you how you want to do it, but just, just make sure the species you're selecting are tolerant to juglone. That's, that's your biggest concern there. Hey, Jack, this is Andy. Uh, just calling to know, to want to know your latest, um, thoughts on RVs. You've done some shows in the past. I haven't heard anything about RVs recently. Uh, thoughts if you own one, you talked about having them in different locations, but pros and cons, just haven't heard it. And if I could slip it in, what about those gold line paint cans you talked about way back in the day? 
You still use them? Anything else to go with that? Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I, I just spent 10 minutes trying to find a pop culture thing for you to pop into there uh, and was unable to find it. I remember there was a bit, I think it was by Bill Ingvall, called uh, about RVs, and he said RV stands for Ruins Vacations. Um, and I found a bit on camping. It was hysterical by him, but it didn't have that in it, so I couldn't do that. But it kind of leads you to where I, I feel a little bit towards about RVs. So here's what I think RVs are good for. RVs are good for temporary housing. If you like to back up and tow big, giant things behind your vehicle and it doesn't make you nervous, they're better for camping than tents will ever, 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 ever be. When I had mine, I did not really enjoy towing it, though. There's something about being on a three-lane piece of highway, three lanes on one side, and for one reason or another, you had to get in that middle lane, and then all of a sudden you go through an area where they're doing construction, and they take the shoulders away, and you have those, you know, those concrete things right up to the edge of the road for some reason. Some guy named Bob in a big rig pulls up on your right side, and Tom pulls up on your left, and you're going around a turn, you got to couple feet from both of them and they're just staying there with you matching your course of speed like freaking star trek right and, and you, they just neither one if you slow down they slow down and if you speed up they speed up and you think you're gonna die that was yeah that's how i felt about rvs to a degree i have to say though that the times we did use our rv and we were camping somewhere and we had other people that were there too and those people were intense We felt pretty good about our RV. We really did. Um, I think you, the other thing RVs are good for is people are like, I want a tiny house. I want a tiny house. Yeah, before you do that, why don't you go get your ass the biggest RV that you can afford, best shape you can afford, and go live in that for a year. And if you really like that, then consider you know getting your tiny house and building your tiny house because it will give you a clue what it's like to live in that limited space And it's a hell of a lot better design than most people's tiny houses end up being. And if you, oh, I want to be mobile. So if you want to be mobile with your place to live, you want an RV. You do not want a friggin' tiny house. If you want to get a tiny house, and yeah, it's on wheels for some sort of getting around the government, and yeah, you can hire somebody with a truck to move it, you know, once every three or four years when you decide to move, then I can see the point. If you think you're going to be in, in you know, Seattle uh, on Wednesday, and, and next Thursday you're going to go to freaking Sheboygan, and then, you know, a couple weeks later you're going to go down to Tucson, and you're towing a tiny house, you're a moron. That really ruins vacations. They should call the tiny house the RV because it ruins vacations. So I'm not real, real hip on them unless you have a purpose behind it. For instance, Gary Collins is still working to finish the project of building his small house, as he calls it, and his off-grid house you know, up in the mountains. And it wasn't livable for a while. He had a great big diesel truck, so he bought himself an RV uh, versus you know slapping together a tiny house hut. Makes a lot of sense to me. He travels quite a bit, so that makes sense. That that makes sense to me. Um, I think most people, if what they're thinking is, I'll get an RV and we'll go camping with it. Man, for the price of an RV, you can pay for a lot of hotel rooms, really nice ones with room service. 
or cabins that are right there with a fire pit outside and the wife's happy and the kids are happy and when it rains you still stay dry like an RV but you don't have to tow it there uh you, you know you don't have to pay the extra you know 35 40% gas even if it's a towable because your truck's using so much more fuel you don't have to worry about things like sway bars and stuff like that so I, i'm not anti RV i'm just saying like these are all things to think about I think they make really great bug out options, uh, either as an active bug out or a passive bug out. So active bug out would be you've got this thing, it's at your house or it's at a storage facility, it's packed up and ready to go, you have a few other things you throw on it. If you need to leave, you hook it up and you go. I'd call that an active bug out. A passive bug out would be that you've got some piece of remote property somewhere and instead of building a house on it, you get a pretty decent RV tuck it back in the woods, hopefully so it doesn't get found by the two-legged rats known as thieves, and you leave it there, and it's a place that you go to, and it's better than having a shack or, or going out there and camping in a tent or something like that. Or the hybrid. That's The reason you have the RV is so that when you go to your bug-out location, you have that infrastructure, but you don't want to leave it there because you know two-legged rats will find her sooner or later, so you take it with you when you go. So th those are the ways I think RVs make sense, and I think they make sense for all of those things. But I, I think that my experience of being an owner, the, the concept of it's a place, to, it's a thing to take camping, and you're going to go a lot, you find yourself looking for reasons not to go through the misery of, of, of dragging it. And then there's people that are completely the opposite. So you have to figure out what it's going to be for you. Here's what I suggest best if you're considering becoming an RV owner. Rent one for a vacation. Rent one for a camping trip. Doesn't even have to be a long time. Rent one for, you know, a, a three-day, you know, long weekend camping trip. There are even places, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, there's places where you can say, I want to rent an RV, and I'm going to camp at, you know, this so-and-so state park. And you can call a company, and as long as you can get a reservation, they will bring it there for you and, and plug it into a hookup, and you just go there and stay like it's a cabin. And that would give you the RV experience. And I'm talking about all about towables here. If you get into like class A's and class C's, these are the ones you drive. So A is like a big giant bus, like a tour bus RV, where you're a driver and when you stop, you can just turn your chair around and you're looking at everybody. And a C, think of C for chop, that's where it's like a truck. It's like a car and you're a driver, you are cut off. C, cut off, right? C, cut off. That's how you remember, chopped or cut off. You're, the driver is cut off from the people that would be back there hanging out, which is generally not a good idea in a, in a Class C for people to be hanging out back there while it's going down the road. I think people do it all the time, though. Um, then you get into a totally different world. I have no experience with them. Um, I drove some really big vehicles in the military. I remember I'm blind in one eye. I have space perception problems and stuff like that, I suggest to get a feel for it, rent one of whatever you think you're going to be and go out and give it a shot and get some experience with it before you go investing twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand, a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in in some of these things. That's just my thoughts. Uh, oh, the cans, paint cans. So there's a company called the Carry Company. I've linked to it so you guys can see it that are new to the show. New, You've been here five, six years. You're new compared to some people. Um, Why don't you talk about these things? I used to do a lot of dehydrated vegetables and just throw them in these, these cans that are phenolically coated with a FDA uh, food-grade uh, approved coating, and it's like a golden color. And I like them. They work just fine. You throw your stuff in there. Maybe you toss in an O2 absorber. You take a rubber mallet, smack, and it's stored. Great. When we got 
the uh, vacuum canner, we kind of went to everything's ball jars. And, and I'll tell you what I really love about the ball jars. They're clear so you can see what's in there. So, yeah, you can label things and all, but now you got this jar and it's in the back or this can's in the back and you can't see the label, so you're reaching back in there. Try, where if it's clear, you kind of push one of the side, go, oh, that's celery. Yeah, that's what I want. Boom. Uh, and, yeah, we should keep everything all perfectly organized, but then there's reality. So I like ball jars. I like clear containers. That doesn't give you the protection from light, but with most of the stuff that we're storing as dry goods, we're storing it in a dark place anyway. Those are my thoughts on that. You snuck two in. Good job. Let's take another one. Yeah, my first question is about, have you heard of spalting or spalted wood? And the reason why this is important, you can take a piece of uh, junk wood and turn it into a more expensive piece of wood with fungus. Um, there's actually a couple of YouTube videos about this, and the best ones are Dr. Robinson. She actually is the foremost researcher of this. I mean, she explains how to look out. Um, that could be one of your uh, Amazon items of the day. Um, and why I think this is important is uh, small world working. This is this is something fairly new, and it's either it's either new or kind of a secret. And it makes a small woodworking person m make a business, make money making small decorative items or whatever out of by doing this process. So I think it'd be a great idea for a business. I think until they commercially do this, which she says that it's so easy to do. She's surprised somebody hasn't commercially done this process yet. Um, that I think it'd be a good idea. Thank you. Okay, so I did know that there's wood out there that's been naturally uh, impregnated with different funguses that makes very de decorative, ornamental wood. Um, there is a, a whole lot of uh, spruce, I guess it's spruce, uh, pine, what have you, uh, western stuff, that's been infected by the, the blue fungus beetle. And what the beetles do is they bore in to the tree, and they don't really hurt the tree, but they carry a fungus with them. And they're in that tree developing, the pupa is. And the tree eventually says, I want this thing out of here. So it uses a plug of sap and it, the sap oozes out into the hole and pushes him out like a little, uh, like a little bulb and he falls to the ground. And he's fine at that point. He's gone into stasis and he's, he's about ready to become a new beetle and go do it again. Well, when that tree does that, that sap seals up that hole and it's basically the same way you inoculate a shiitake log with a plug and wax. It's now impregnated with this blue fungus. The problem is it kills a tree. So there's just millions of acres of standing dead trees in the United States right now that are on public land and the, the national parks and stuff like that. And the park people are too stupid to cut them down because they want to let nature fix it. Well, nature needs a hand here, dummy. And all of that can be harvested. In places where it is harvested, uh, it's used as wood flooring. It's very beautiful, these blue streaks in there. I never thought, well... We can just take a piece of wood and inoculate it with various different funguses and create similar effects, maybe far more dramatic. And maybe take something that's kind of a boring wood, like maple's not that uh, exciting of a wood, and make it look really, really fantastic with these different ways and patterns of fungus. So I looked this up. Some of this stuff is gorgeous. Different colors and things like that. I found the website of this uh, doctor that he had mentioned uh, it's just a simple WordPress site. I think they're out of the University of Oregon. 
you can actually buy fungus. And I think there's other funguses other than the ones they sell that you can do this with. <clears throat> I don't know any more than I just gave you really about the process because I heard about this today when I screened this call. I did want to bring it to your attention because I do think it has the potential for various things of entrepreneurship. I found a gorgeous drop point hunter knife made with, with spalted wood and posted it on Facebook. And I said, Patrick Roman, have you seen this stuff? And he says he's worked with some splayed maple that's, I think, more of a naturally fungally inoculated maple that, that's really nice. So that's just one example. I mean, the, the, the thing that everybody does, and it's why the market's a little tough because it's a little saturated, but if you develop your own markets that are just trying to sell online, right? So we talked yesterday about... Um, With farming, the, a lot of the marketing is 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 real world marketing. It's not it's not click marketing. It's it's brick marketing, right? It's you know word of mouth. It's it's letting people know about. It's getting people to recommend you and whatever. But you need the website to then translate the sale. So wood uh, turning wood on small lathes and making pens and stuff like that. That would be one you know small piece of wood doesn't take long to inoculate it. Really really unique. And developing markets, and I think they're like if you're going to be in that business, you want to go really high end. You want to be the place that somebody's like, I'm going to get Tom a pen for Christmas this year. And I'm going to go to Sean because Sean, you know, the, that would be the type of way I would market that business. But you could do other things like that. Um, what I would do right now, given the market, you got to think like, who are you selling this stuff to? Upwardly mobile people, people that have money and like to buy stuff, not just because it functions, but because it's pretty. They're buying to the want, not the need. Anybody can get a bowl for a dollar at the dollar store. Some people buy a, a bowl at Kohl's for a little bit more money, but this gorgeous wooden bowl that's going to sit here and be looked at for a hundred dollars. There's only certain groups of people that do that. One of the biggest demographics of that people is people that are concerned about the environment logically and in, in insane ways at the same time. There's people like, I consider myself a raving environmentalist, but I don't consider myself crazy like some of these people out here that are all worried about carbon taxes and stuff like that. It's a very hot thing. So the way I would position this is what we're able to do is give you the exotic look using locally sourced lumber that would otherwise go to waste. And now you have something. Now you've developed a hook. What we do is we take this local lumber, it looks like this, it's very plain, nobody really does much with it other than burn it, you know, or maybe make cabinets out of it and then paint them. We take this wood and we use this, this completely 100% natural process to bring out its true beauty. And we make it look fantastic beyond some of the most exotic woods. And those, those, those forests far away, we don't spend any, you know, time transporting them. We also protect, we're not cutting them down and using that exotic wood and exploiting that resource. We're creating this, this new exotic thing. 100% unique, custom made right here at home. Now, I say that for a couple of reasons. One, because I think there's some people in this audience that are woodworkers that are going to look at this and go, ooh, and come up with something. I also pull this out, though, just so you can see, like, anybody that wants to could learn how to spalt wood and make a few things out of it. The magic in being successful in business is developing the compelling story that I just gave you so that your first yuppie uh, customer that buys something way overpriced, you know, that most people could I'm not even going to say it's overpriced. It's more expensive than the average non-yuppie would buy, Right. 
And, and he, when he goes and his, his friend sees it, he's going to say, oh, there's this guy Tom. Let me tell you what he does. He takes this locally sourced wood that's really just plain looking. He makes it look like this, but it's all natural. It's not stain. He uses these different funguses and he inoculates and it brings out the color, the, the real heart of the wood. And then he hand makes this stuff. He's going to want to know where to find Tom when, when he hears that story. And, and it doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to put together, if you want to be able to sell reliably without always working for it, if you want your market to, to expand itself, you have to develop a compelling story that, so that when someone tells somebody else about them, they just go, oh, I got this pen or I got this bowl or I got this cutting board or whatever it is you know, from this, this, this website, so-and-so.com. You want them to tell it with passion and enthusiasm, so you got to give them something. So there's your business lesson of the week. Uh, I think it's probably not your first business lesson this week, but that's probably going to be your best one. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Paul. I know you're tired of talking about pine needles, but uh local company is clearing power lines, and I told them, dump all those chips on my property, and they have been. Um, most of it is pine. I'm in northern Minnesota. Um, my question is, I can see on the outside of those piles that it's brown, but what about the inside, and how long should I just let that kind of sit until it should be good on the inside as well as the outside? Um, I've got like 100, 150 yards of chips out in the back, 40, and they've still been dumping them every day. So um, I'm way beyond, you know, what do I want for a raised garden? It's like i got to spread this out over my, you know, four inches of poor soil over clay and, you know, get the soil back up to where it's going good. Anyway, love your thoughts. Edit how you like. This is Paul. Later, Jack. Going to be real brief on this one. Just get it spread out. Don't worry about it. Stop worrying about it. Don't worry about it. You have to wait for it to turn brown or whatever the hell you're worried about. Uh, don't worry about acidity because if it's if it's chipped trimmings, then it's probably around 80% wood and, and somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% needles, and the needles are where you're going to get your acidity from. You ain't going to get much acidity from, from the pine wood bark mulch. Is it the best mulch on the planet? No and yes. No, because there are mulches, and you know if you get like a mix, hardwood, softwood, all different stuff, native, you know, different trees from all different varieties and leaves and needles and branches that are green and branches that are brown and all that stuff together in a huge, you know, mix, well, that's best. But yours is best because yours is the kind I like the best. Free. Free. Free is best. What kind of beer you're like? Well, I like all these different microbrews, but my favorite beer is free. Right? So it's free. Okay. It's not going to hurt nothing. You're not going to mess nothing up. If you do get a little bit moving toward the acid side in your soil, in most instances, that's good anyway. Spread it out. Use it wherever you need mulch. Put it 
And I wish somebody would dump a whole bunch of that stuff here. And I would take pure needles here because I'm alkaline flats. I'd take all the acidity I could get. Um, but, uh, you know, go for it. Stop worrying about it. Don't wait for nothing. Put it where you want it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack Austin, the Leo here from Central Texas, uh, commenting on the death of the ability of an officer to have discretion. Um, this will be quick, very long story short. I am one of the officers on the board here to select the type of body cameras uh, that our city will currently be investing in for all officers. And one of the protocols and procedures, our general orders, uh, is any interaction with any citizen, we will have to activate our body cameras. Uh, you kind of foretold this a while back uh, about the death of discretion in law enforcement, and I saw it coming as well. Um, it, it, it's very similar anytime we have to activate what we currently have, which is our in-car cameras and a mic pack on us, but this is going to make it even uh, more difficult for us. Uh, to give an example, we're going to have instances where I pulled someone over because they ran a stop sign, and I'm going to give them a warning. Well, if I give them a warning and I don't give the next person a warning, all of that's public record. Uh, you can pull that up and be like, well, they both did the same offense. Why did you not enforce it the same way? You're prejudiced in some way or the other. And so what you're going to get is one of two things. You're going to get officers who don't do anything, uh, or you're going to get officers who are simply going to say, everyone I pull over is going to get a citation. Um, that little bit of weed that, you know, I pull someone over and I smell marijuana, I no longer have the option. Uh, the the calling someone to come pick up the, the guy who's slightly intoxicated, I no longer have an option. Uh, that's, that's what's going to be coming um, because of all of this. Good or bad, don't know. Uh, it's just a fact. So thought I'd throw that out there. Keep doing what you do and keep doing good stuff. Well, it is kind of exactly what I said. And... I don't know if it's because I've lived in larger cities for you know or around, in and around larger cities, but I've seen a lot less officer discretion exercised anyway lately. And I'm wondering if there's a a, a, pol a law enforcement culture moving that direction anyway. And Austin, you could probably speak to that better than me if you want to call back about it. But man, I remember when I was you know a teenager and I ran with some kids and we'd occasionally get on the wrong side of the law not in a real bad way but in different things and and i'm excluding uh, an officer named jack harley who was the only police officer for cash township which is where my grandparents lived and where i did a lot of my growing up who knew me personally on a first name basis you know you you expect some discretion there but i'm even talking about you know running in a little bit you know getting pulled over and your buddy's got a you know a little bit of pot and and this is a long time ago before all of this you know Uh, acceptance of cannabis and legalization and you know you could tell maybe the kids have been out at a bush party but nobody's really drunk and it's late and you were doing a little bit too fast and where you going we're going home and everybody's respectful and you know i don't want to see you again and not get out of here type of thing 
And I'm seeing less of that. My wife recently got popped for speeding, and guy never even—you can tell—he never even thought about issuing a warning. And she was like, "Like, when you know, when's the last time you got a ticket?" And I'm like, "Well, I got one because I was really going too fast. I was in a construction zone, and I didn't see the signs changing because there wasn't in construction. They put the signs up, but they didn't actually start doing the construction. The guy knew it was a speed trap, and it was like a highway where the speed limit was 75, and it dropped down to 40." So I got this. I got this, the cruise control set at like 78, just doing a few miles over. So I'm blowing like 78 and 45. So yeah, he was right. But I'm like, I hadn't got a ticket forever other than that one. I always got out of tickets, always. And I'm just, and I hadn't been pulled over in a long time. So I, I don't know if it's just me, but I, most of the people I've heard recently got popped. They just get a ticket. You just get a ticket. And I, she's like, how many did you get out of? I started going through it. I was like, geez, over 20 years, I got out of 20 freaking tickets. Maybe maybe not quite that much, but it sure started to seem that way. I'm like, well, there's the one we got pulled over and we were going to Arkansas right after we bought the place. And I told you I was getting a warning before he even gave me the warning because I could tell when he came back he had nothing for me to sign. Um, you, you think, <laughs> I started going in. And there was the one up here and the one over there. And I, I just kind of feel like that whole world has gone south. And I, I don't know if it's so much just body cameras but also the fear of lawsuits. I say, let's say I'm a cop. And let's say... I pull you over, and you have been drinking. You're not drunk off your ass. And I look at you, and I think, he might even pass a breathalyzer. He might not. If he doesn't, and the limit's like .08, he's going to be like .08, .09. He's not going to be .10. That, and you know, using a little bit of my own sense, by the way, that used to be the limit. I've been doing this job a while. I kind of know this guy's okay. He tells me I live one block away. I can see my house from here. I look at his license. I'm going home, and he is. And you know what you're thinking? If you don't just escort that guy home, let him go home, close the door, and go to bed, you're an asshole. Okay? Except, in the words of Dr. Gregory House, everybody lies. So even though he's going, how do I know he's going home to stay home? So I have contact with that individual. That is somehow recorded as a contact. Maybe I pulled him over for speed and I write him his speeding ticket and I send him home. He hits the house and he goes out and, and, and ties one on again. Or maybe he opens up a bottle of whiskey in the house, gets drunk, realizes he didn't have as you know really drunk, realizes he didn't have as much as he thought he did, jumps back in the car to go back to his buddies where he got tanked up in the first place, gets in a wreck and ends up paralyzed. Okay, he doesn't even hurt anybody else. He hits a telephone pole and he personally gets paralyzed, or he's dead. He had contact with me as a law enforcement officer. He was probably over the legal limit when I had contact with him. Now he's dead or in a wheelchair. You don't think that can come back as a lawsuit? Both against the state and me personally? And you don't think cops are starting to think that way? Because I would. I would. Because everything's... Before we even put the body camera on, there's a record of that contact. Now you add a camera to it. Guy slurs his speech just a little bit. I know I'm through if anything happens to him or anything happens because of him if I do not go to the full extent of what my abilities are. So, you know, we're going to take a sobriety test. And you're, that's the thing, too. When you take a sobriety test from a cop, you're going to fail it. 
you're going to fail it. I bet you if you set kind of a reverse sting up on cops where they were pulling people over that they thought were like random pullovers and those people were there as some kind of you set it up with a department so it's all kosher and whatever and uh, so there's they give some reason to be pulled over. Maybe you have one of the cops in on it so that the other cop doesn't know and there's no real violation law. So you, you do one of the things where like the one cop's on a on a uh, overpass with a, with a radar detector, not a radar detector, a radar gun, and or LIDAR gun, and he shoots the car, and he says, okay, and he, he tells the other cop it's coming. So the guy's not really speeding, so that all goes away, and we're running some kind of a department-approved test. And, and that guy's told to, to act a little bit inebriated, just, just a little bit, and you, you know, sprinkle a little Jack Daniels on the headliner or something like that so the smell's there, and that cop immediately goes into his DUI investigation mode. And then you tell the guy, but when you get out of that vehicle, Whatever act you've put on up to that point, stop it and do everything to the best of your ability. I will bet you that 99% of people will quote-unquote fail that that test and be asked to do a, a breath test. I'm not going to say why I think that, uh, other than I think the system's rigged that way. I think the officer, when they ask you to do that, has made a determination. So I guess I am saying why. That's why I think that happens. They've already decided you're drunk, and they're justifying the next step. But, again, if, I'm, if I've done all this on video, and, and yeah, I, I, could also, I never really thought of the implications of, well, you know, my client was, was driving down the road. And I didn't notice that stop sign. It's a little bit obscured by that tree. And uh, he, he you know, rolled through it, kind of slowed down to look. You can see, you know, on, on the, the video of your, your, your vehicle camera when you were sitting there uh, watching him for that stop sign that it seems like you're using kind of as a trap. You kind of know. He did slow down, so it did look like he was making sure the way was clear. And he acted as you would act when you don't see a stop sign. And uh, you wrote him a ticket. And it is clear that he went through that stop sign. But we pulled all the records from that day, and you pulled over two other individuals uh, that were both let off with a warning. And we asked them what they told you. Uh, we, we contacted them and asked if they would give us you know, a, a, an affidavit. And they said that what they told you, Officer Smith, was that they didn't notice the stop sign. They had slowed down. They told you the exact same thing my client did. Now, what I've noticed, Officer Smith, is you're a white man. And uh, the, the, the two people you let off were young, pretty white women. And, and my client happens to be an old black man. Now, that just looks suspicious to me. You don't think that would happen? So what do you think? Do you think Austin's right? The death of officer discretion? I think to a large degree. I think there is a way to fix it if the leadership in departments wants to. And that is that officers should exercise discretion. It shouldn't have to be behind the scenes. It shouldn't be hidden. That departments should train and leadership should train officers in the use of discretion. When it is appropriate, how it is appropriate, etc. I know for a fact some some officers are sent out at times and told pull over speeders, and right now we're doing a, a, a real safety. We're actually concerned about safety. The, the, there seems to be more accidents in this area. We don't want to write a bunch of tickets today. So the speed limit through there is 55. Uh, pull over anybody over 60. Issue warnings from 60 to 70 unless the guy's an asshole about it. And then anybody over 70 write them a ticket. 
or anybody that's clearly like careless, reckless, dangerous driving around them a ticket, standard speeders, speeders, just it's this is a warning. Written warning, or sometimes the direction is, is, is oral warning. Because it does actually encourage people to slow the hell down. It gets You get known. Okay, that area, they're hitting that area right now. And, and it sticks with people a lot longer than people do it. So there is that already. But, yeah, you add cameras to the mix, it gets more difficult, doesn't it? Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA. Following up on your uh, city on the edge of forever, uh, discussion. For those who have Amazon Prime, which Jack's recommended because on top of getting like free shipping and so many other things, you get access to free TV. Amazon has a series uh, based on a Philip K. Dick novel like uh, Blade Runner and a few others called Man in the High Castle. And in it, the context is basically the Germans did get the bomb before us. They took out Washington, D.C. America is German territory up to the Rockies and Japanese territory on the West Coast. And it's a really interesting show, um, just the dynamics of what society could be like, how different things would develop. Um, so it's pretty much probably the closest portrayal you can actually see of that theory done um, visually. So I highly recommend it. It's a fun show. It's an intriguing show. And some really superb, you know, visuals and context. So just for anyone who is trying to find something to sit back and relax and drink a beer, and in the high castle. Well, I'm going to talk to my wife and see if she wants to start watching that. That sounds interesting. Um, I'm not a person who spends an awful lot of time in front of the TV, but there's a point at, at, at the end of the day where we've eaten dinner and we've done all the chores and it's dark outside, and that's something that Dorothy and I do. We sit down on the couch and try to find something that we can both watch. That sounds interesting. Um, it makes me think of something, I don't know if it was a movie or a series or something I saw a long time ago that was the same premise that the Germans won the war, um, and I, I'm not, but I don't know that it's the same thing. I remember there were signs about you know procreate everywhere and stuff like that. Uh, it, it sounds very different. In this, I did a little research into it. So, the, yeah, the Nazis have basically Texas over, right, uh, from the one border to the next, and then the 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 Japanese have the Pacific West Coast. But there's this there's this con there's this piece, and it's where you might think, right, the American Readout, right. It's like Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and parts of Utah. There's a little island called a neutral zone that's there in the middle. It probably just wasn't worth the headache to, to, to go through trying to take uh, and hold. Uh, so it's kind of left as this little island. And I guess they need that in the storyline to have some kind of base of operations for the resistance or what have you. Um, it, it, it actually seems pretty interesting. And uh, I'll tell you what I think about it if we watch a little bit over the coming weekend or something like that. Uh, if my opinion goes up or down from here. But uh, what Jason and PA recommended is it's probably pretty good. Most of the stuff comes out of him is pretty good. With that, we got one more today. Let's go ahead and take that call now. Jack, what makes an effective killing round? Um, kind of two sub-questions to that are, it seems like we have different standards for stopping an intruder in our house versus what makes a good deer killing round. For deer, we want penetration. We want the, as you've said, you want the bullet to go all the way through versus for, you know, 
stopping someone in our house, most of those kind of self-defense rounds are labeled as expanding and not necessarily penetrating that well. Why is that? Why do we have a different standard for killing animals versus stopping people? The second question, or related, is uh, why does it seem like handgun calibers are larger than rifle calibers? So I know there's exceptions, but it seems like a lot of handgun calibers are like, you know, 40, 45, 38, versus rifle cartridges tend to be 223, 308, 6 millimeter, 7 millimeter. So is that somehow related to, to the... Uh, to what makes, to the purposes of a handgun versus a rifle. And I know some of this has to do with sectional density, but it seems like you could make, you could make any caliber bullet have a good sectional density. And then it's just about how much power you put behind it. So is there some optimal speed that comes into play there, or am I just missing something? Thanks a lot, Jack. Okay, so what I want to kind of start out with is every round that, that would generally be used from 22 long rifle up to, you know, 50 BMG, 50 caliber machine gun round, 20 millimeter Vulcan gun round, they're all effective killing rounds in, 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 a, in a real way. There's probably more people, if you take out, if you forget military, if you go just, you know, robbers and thieves and stuff like that. More people kill with a 22 than just about any other uh, cartridge out there because they're so inexpensive and prevalent and things like that, and they kill. Okay, So there's, there's, there's different aspects when you look at what ballistically a round does when it, when it kills that are desirable. So, for instance, if I'm out in the woods and I shoot a deer through the lungs... And it punches a hole through it, does a whole bunch of damage. It's not just like somebody stuck a pencil through there. I mean, there's a lot of hydraulic damage that goes on and destruction of lungs and things like that. But that animal happens to run 50 feet, spewing blood, piles up and dies. It's an effective killing round. I, I, it's, it's, it's neat and you feel like you've done your job right as a hunter with a quick kill when you go and it just anchors the animal and it drops and it doesn't even barely move. The foot kicks a little bit and it bleeds out and it's dead. It's like never, it's like dynamite went off in its chest and just goes down. That's great, but when it comes down to the brass tacks, there's not a hill of beans of difference. You know, if it goes over a cliff or something, then we got a problem, but I don't necessarily need to anchor a deer. About the only thing in North America that I really need to anchor would be if I was out grizzly hunting or brown bear hunting or polar bear hunting. Even black bear ain't likely to ever need it. Okay, but now let's think about it. We're going to go hunt a grizzly bear or a brown bear. Stopping power starts to be more important than killing power, doesn't it? Because if you shoot him and he runs 100 yards, falls over, rolls around, flips around, bleeds out, and dies, or you shoot him and he drops with stomping power, immediate first-round stomping power, again, we're back to it doesn't make a hill of beans a difference. But if you shoot him and he turns around at you and you're 50 feet away and he's got 100 yards in him, he can make you really dead if you don't get that next round off and stop him, right? Now we go to home defense, self-defense situations. 
We're more worried about incapacitation than killing. Why? If I'm drawing my sidearm, if I'm grabbing a gun and going to the front door with it, what I'm saying right there is I believe there's a risk or potential risk to my life. The minute I decide and the computer in my brain goes off that deploying lethal force is warranted, there better be life in danger. That's how the law works. Somebody's got your TV and they're running down the road with it and you lay them out like a deer on the first day with a shot to the back of the head. You may believe that's justice in your heart, but the justice system doesn't care about your heart. It cares about was there legitimate risk to safety, which is why if he's running down the road with your loaded shotgun, it might be, depending on the whole totality of the situation, a different story if you shot him because he's a thief. He's got a loaded gun. You're responsible for it. You could make a case for that, but he ain't going to kill anybody with your TV. Okay? So the very fact that when we're deploying lethal force, we're doing it only because our life or the life of another person's in jeopardy, what's more important, stopping or killing? In fact, how do you answer the officer when he gives you, when you give a report and an after-action report, you know, and you've asked to speak to counsel and what have you, by the way, okay? But how do you phrase it? I shot with the intent to stop the attack, not I shot to kill. Doesn't matter what you did, it's what you say. I shot with the intention to stop the attack, which even if you wanted the guy dead, right, it's still what you were trying to do, stop the attack. So we're looking when we, we put bullets into a threat, uh, where there's a threat of violence to us or somebody else, the guy's got a knife, he's got a gun, he's bigger than us, he's trying to beat our wife to death, he's trying to beat us to death, he's got a crowbar, he's coming through our window, whatever it is, we're shooting to incapacitate. So this goes to your kind of your next question. Why did we? Why does it sound like handgun rounds are bigger than rifle rounds? Well, because diameter-wise, caliber-wise, they often are. You know, if you look at something like a nine millimeter, it's a thirty-five caliber, .357, and a lot of guys are out deer hunting with a two seventy, a twenty-seven caliber. But a two seventy is a hell of a lot more gun than a nine millimeter. And it's not sectional density is one thing, and we'll get to your sectional density concept in a second. But it's it's it, you know you got a 270 and you're cranking out this round at about 3,000 feet per second, you know 2,800 3,000 feet per second somewhere in that range, and uh, it weighs 150 grains or 130 grains, and you got that nine millimeter uh, coming out of that handgun with a bullet of let's say 115 grains at around 1,250 feet per second. The kinetic energy difference is just massive. It's just massively different. We're talking multiple tons of difference in the total energy delivered to the target. However, as you said, that 270 is like to, likely to penetrate that target. And that 9mm, especially an expanding round, is more likely to dump its energy into that target. So the 270 is far more lethal, but in some ways, the handgun round may have a greater potential to stop the person, incapacitate, even if they don't die. In reality, when we look at actual ballistic studies, nothing has the, the incapacitation and the lethality of rifles and shotguns. So the reason you have these larger holes in the handguns is we're trying to compensate for the lack of energy with, with a bigger hole. 
to, 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 to more likely disrupt something. As it expands, it's an even bigger hole. So what we want to do is we want to disrupt critical systems that shut down the attacker. And unless we're hunting dangerous game, the, 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 the priorities are totally different. I'm not worried a deer, I'm going to shoot a deer and it's going to try to climb up a tree and eat me. I'm not even worried an elk's going to do it, right? Now, if I'm, if I'm crawling through the, 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 the high veld in, in, in Botswana and I'm pursuing Cape Buffalo and I don't get a one-shot kill and I'm going to have one of the largest bovines on the planet in a murderous rage and once they don't go down the first time, they, then the testosterone goes up in them, they're one of the like hardest things in the world to put down. I might have a little bit more concern about stopping power. So that, that's how you have to kind of come at that one. And, 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 and then you have to come down to the final realization here. Why do handguns even exist? Because in many situations, rifles are not practical. That's the only real reason. From, from an from a absolute you know, stand of be, being... Because what is a gun for? A gun is for killing. You might use it for sporting. You might use it for target practice. The gun was invented to kill. That's its purpose. And when we're talking about hunting or self-defense, we're talking about killing. You ever have that friend that's just annoying as shit? Did you catch a deer? No, I shot one, but I didn't catch it. I wouldn't know what to do with it if I caught it. You know? Maybe hit it with a tire iron. Somebody's laughing out there right now. They don't know the rest of that story. Anyway, um, <laughs> but no, you, you know, that's so you, we're, we're talking about lethality. So another way to understand this whole, you know, why handguns have bigger holes in them Think about long arms in military service 300, 400 years ago. You know, the, the musket balls, freaking 72 caliber ball. Why? You put a big enough hole in anything, it dies. And as gunpowder became more efficient and velocities went higher and higher, calibers came down to where the average U.S. soldier's out now with a 5.56 or 22 caliber round which I think is a bit light for the job in many instances, but it does work. Um, or, you know, you step in as like a 308, 30-762 round. Why? Because at higher velocity, more energy. Now, your sectional density question. You say any round can have a high section, any bullet can have a high sectional density, but within the realm of what's practical. So if I wanted to, to take that 9mm and I wanted to really push its sectional density up, I've got to come up with something like a 225 grain or 250 grain bullet, and the bullet is now longer than the entire cartridge length, so it, does, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And as we increase the weight of the bullet, we need more powder, and we also increase the force of recoil. You get a very, if you did make a handgun, it might be okay for hunt. I got a 35 Remington uh, handgun. All right, that's a hand cannon, but it's a single shot. Not walking around with it in my waistband for personal protection, right? So that's, that's how you have to come at that one. Anyway, I hope that makes sense, and I hope it helps people that are maybe not. You know, I think sometimes those of us that spent our whole lives, you know, looking at ballistics calculators and reloading and hunting and and had military training and all, you assume that a lot of really common sense stuff in the world of ammunition is just known. And, and it really isn't. And it's, it's important for us to take the time to educate people that want to learn about it because we had to learn too. We just learned a lot over a long time. And a lot of folks now realizing what they don't know, they want to learn a lot over a short time. 
And none of it's really that hard or that complicated or like that spooky mathematically or anything like that. Big hole goes deep enough, thing dies. Two holes, thing bleeds. And that's one of the real, that's one of the things you really like in a hunting round. It's not just getting that penetration because in the words of Jack O'Connor, an animal with a hole in both lungs will run about as far as it can hold his breath. That's true. But even if we don't get a double lung shot, if we get a hole on both sides, we don't get any kind of a vacuum effect. We get blood spurt and we got a trail we can follow. And it's going to be dead somewhere. You get one hole, you know, I've, I've seen animals hit solidly, blown up lungs, no exit hole for whatever reason. Animals 50 yards weren't shot, not a drop of blood until it hits the ground. So now we have it's a, a harder tracking thing. So all, the, the, the big thing is those two worlds are different. And, and what kills a deer will definitely kill a man, man, because a deer wants to live bad. They got a survival instinct that's incredible, and they they physically can. You know, a 150 pound deer could beat the shit out of a 250 pound professional fighter. A hundred pound deer beat the shit out of a 250 pound professional fighter. So it, it's not a direct apples to apples comparison. All right. So anyway, if you if you like this show and you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that is by doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. Just go over to tspaztspaz.com and click a link. You'll end up on Amazon. Do your Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra money or time, and you support our show. I also review a product every day on tspaz where you can see the item of the day. And the one I have for you today is kind of cool. You, If you are a person that has a, like a survival fishing kit, You want at least one jar of this stuff in your survival fishing kit. It's a product called Ber Berkley Gulp. And there's a lot of different Berkley Gulps. This is Berkley Gulp Soft Bait. And it's little ones that look like little worms, little maggots for like panfish. Works for panfish and trout really good. So my first experience with any kind of a, like a prepared bait like this was a stuff, a stuff called garlic bait. And it was 30, no, 40, 41 years ago. I was four years old. And uh, I went to this fishing rodeo. I can barely remember it. It was with my dad and my grandfather. It was a Susquehanna fishing rodeo, and they stocked brown trout. And uh, nobody's really catching anything. And the old man had some little bitty treble hooks, and he'd stick it in there, kind of like catfish punch bait, and pull it out and make a little ball with it, and float it off the bottom like the worms I told you about last week. And uh, there was you could catch four trout in this rodeo, so there was enough for all the kids. And I won the largest trout and the largest four trout. I won two prizes. And there was also a prize for the first four trout. Um, and there were some other prizes. I would have won the first four, but they decided that it was unfair for one kid to win too many things. So the, the you know everyone gets a trophy disease is not maybe as new as we think that it is. It didn't bother me. I was happy. I caught fish. That's all I cared about. But but that's kind of the way I'd always thought of these prepared baits, like as, as for that. And it didn't work that great for panfish, and there were better baits. Well, I guess it was maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years ago. I'm not sure now. My friend Brad that I served in the Army with and I, he said, you want to go fishing this weekend? So yeah, we'll go fishing. I found this great place. It looks like there used to be an apartment complex. There used to be a lake, and it's got a boat ramp, and like old boat docks that are kind of worn out. And But it's not that big. It's like an acre. But it's cool. There's lots of fish in it. So he tells me how to get there. I meet him there, and it's exactly what he said. Like, you see an old boat. Like, what the hell would you need a boat ramp for something this big? I don't know if it used to be bigger and it was shrunk down. But where the, where the there's like, they almost look like slips. And you could walk out. There was no wood left. It was just concrete. You could walk out on these piers and, and cast over against this wall, and there were huge bluegills. 
I'm talking bigger than your hand. Big-ass bluegills all up in there. And I was catching about one to every two that he's catching. And this guy's just not a better fisher than me. He just isn't. And I finally, like, what the hell are you doing? I was using pieces of worm. Just nightcrawler, broken off pieces of worm. He threw this jar at me and said, hey, try this. And it was the same stuff, only it was pink. And, man, I started catching, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, I'm catching just as many or probably more than he is of these things. And I look at this stuff, and I realize, like, this is the evolution of this this stuff I remember from my childhood. This is the the, the, the 21st century version of these, these types of baits. And what I realized really quick as I was getting more and more into preparedness is this is an incredible thing for preparedness. Everybody has their own little survival, or I call it a wilderness or a compact fishing kit. I don't try to get overly dramatic with survival situations or whatever. And I'm like, you need a jar or two of this in every little fishing kit, tackle box, whatever, because then you're never without bait. And, like, all of the stuff that always catches panfish goes bad. Bread go, bad. bread catches bluegills. It goes stale. You ever leave a box of worms in your car overnight by accident? <laughs> you know, any kind of thing that I can think of that's like this kind of a, a panfish perch bait goes bad. You got this stuff six months later, it's still good. Awesome. And they eat it. It's not a lure. They eat it. Um, I've took, took it and like thrown it in and watched bluegills out of a pond, you know, out of pier, just come up, take it, and eat it. So um, I started using it. And I also have a video series with the review today. It's a video series many of you guys have seen from a long time ago. It's called Survival Fishing with Flowers. Doesn't have anything to do with this stuff, but it makes the point that I'm kind of making here with subsistence or call it survival fishing. If you can catch little fish, you can use little fish to catch big fish, whether you use them whole as live bait or whether you use them as cut bait or you use their guts or remains as bait. And when I did this video series, what I did, I went to this park, I had some fish, I had some string, I had some hooks, I had a little $1 knife and some parachute cord. And I had to see what I could do with that. And I had no bait. Well, I went in the bush and I dug some flowers out. I used the flowers to jig. And I used those and I caught you know, a number of sunfish. And then I had a hot dog. But I didn't get to use the hot dog until I caught at least one sunfish that simulated waste material from the sunfish. And I was able to catch a catfish with a jug line from a bottle that I found floating in the water right there. And uh, then I was actually able to hook, and I wasn't able to, to bring it up onto the shore because I didn't want to hurt it and I didn't want to get bit, but a great big snapping turtle. And I started with a flower. Well, imagine if I started with this, it would be even easier. So if you have this in, in, a, in a, you know, a, a wilderness fishing kit, in most instances you can use one uh, fish to move up the food chain to, to larger things. And then if you just, you know, you're in your truck, you see a pond, you're like, I wonder if there's any fish in there. And you just have an opportunity to fish. Instead of pitching a beetle spin around or something like that, you've got a bait option. And that's why I think it's great stuff and it belongs in everybody's tackle boxes and wilderness fishing kits and compact fishing kits, survival fishing kits, call them what you want to. Berkeley Gulp, um, soft baits. And there's some other stuff. There's night crawlers. I, I tried them. I never did good with them, but some people told me they've done good. They have crickets. I've never tried those. There's a bunch of stuff. Once you see this one, you can kind of get a feel for it. And if you use any different ones and you have any fishing reports on, I'd love to hear from you. On that note, if you like fishing for bullheads, I'll just throw this out here at the end. Check out a website today called bullheadfishing.com. It's just a little fun site I threw together in a couple hours last weekend when I had some downtime and I didn't feel like being outside because it wasn't nice at the moment. And uh, I like to build little websites and see where they go. And that one's there. And there's a forum and all kinds of cool stuff. 
bullheadfishing.com. All right, um, next up, time for the song of the day. And, and remember what I'm doing, uh, and it seems like I might just keep doing it because it's made my life easy. I haven't had to think about a song for a while now. But certainly through the war years and through the 50s, I kind of think it would be interesting to, to get a look at America through its, its music. And uh, play the number one song of the year to tie into the the you know the the episode uh, the year that was the episode theme, and today's is by Bing Crosby, and it's called "Swinging on a Star," and almost everybody in this audience I bet has heard this song. Would you like to swing on a star? And, and the odds are that it's most likely that when you hear this, you're going to go, that doesn't quite sound the way that I remember. That's because this is the original version by Bing Crosby. Of course, in later years, Frank Sinatra would cover this song, and nobody does anything quite like Frank, right? But this song's an interesting, it almost sounds kind of juvenile. You know, you want to be a fish or a pig, you know, or a mule, Or do you want to swing on a star? You know, a mule kicks at anything that comes up or whatever. And if pig is lazy, and it, it, it almost sounds kind of childish, like something you'd hear on like something like Sesame Street. Don't be a pig, be a neat boy or something. You know, in some ways. Um, but I think what the real message in this song is is you can either improve yourself and be something really great, or remain ignorant. Remain lazy. Put no effort into your life. You can be great or you can be a sad excuse. And if you want to swing on a star, that's a metaphor, it's symbolic, then you have to put something into life. It's an interesting thing to be thinking about when so many men were risking their life when this song was number one. Just a few thoughts. Again, 1944... The war is raging in Europe and the Pacific. Americans back home are trying to find something to feel good about. And that's why the types of songs that you've been hearing for the past few episodes, I think, were so popular. They made people feel better at a time when they desperately needed to feel better. And isn't that what we kind of always turn to music to do for us? With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears, kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny, but his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. Or would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a pig? A pig is an animal with dirt on his face. His shoes are a terrible disgrace. He has no manners when he eats his food. He's fat and lazy and extremely rude. But if you don't care a feather or a fig, you may grow up to be a pig. Or would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a fish? A fish won't do anything but swim in a brook. 
He can't write his name or read a book To fool the people is his only thought And though he's slippery, he still gets caught But then if that sort of life is what you wish You may grow up to be a fish Kinda jumped up slippery fish And all the monkeys are in the zoo Every day you meet quite a few So you see it's all up to you You can be better than you are You could be swinging on a star 